Welcome to Cryptic Chronicles, a show dedicated to exploring all the unexplained mysteries of existence, as well as everything dark, weird, or cryptic in the world. Today on the show is part one of a journey into a series exploring the mysterious Nephilim. These Nephilim, like many things we cover, have many different perspectives and contradicting lore. Normally associated with enigmatic passages from the Bible, these demigod-type entities actually not only have theories concerning the influence of aliens in humanity's long-forgotten ancient past, but also being analogous to supernatural entities across many cultures' mythologies. They're the heroes of old, the men of renown such as, uh, such as Hercules and people like that. By the time you're done with this series, you're going to be an expert on the Nephilim, the Watchers, and Anunnaki lore as well. However, even though some of these topics take us into the Bible, this is not a religious episode whatsoever, so if you're highly religious concerning one of the main orthodox religions, then you probably shouldn't listen to this episode or this series in general. Just shut it off right now. It's only going to bother you, and I'm <laughs> I'm being nice giving you a heads up, because uh, yeah, it gets pretty weird. And we're going to go into alternative views of the Bible, and also the history of the Bible slightly, and um, so I guess if you're highly dogmatic, please just go away right now for your own sake. Anyway, there's an incredibly vast amount of myth and folklore concerning the Nephilim. It crosses over from forbidden biblical texts to New Age thought to straight up forbidden archaeology. The Nephilim are also a testament to those in power being able to hide knowledge from the masses, with one of these main sources being the Books of Enoch, a forbidden book of the Bible that was taken out of Christian canon and very much not really accepted or approved of in mainstream Christian society or, or any real religions for that matter, concerning the Abrahamic religions. When I was a kid and asked about it, um, just like Sitchin actually, which is an interesting coincidence, I was told to shut up about it. So the topic of the Nephilim has always intrigued me. And I wonder just how confusing it was to a lot of people because Enoch is referenced a lot in the Bible with no elaboration because the books that concern him were removed, which led to people just translating it from a Greek word, uh, gigantus, to be giant. And these giant myths are present all throughout the world. So I'm going to be going into, at least in this first episode, a lot of hard-to-find ancient history concerning the Bible and the Near East, and all these first human civilizations, which some may find kind of boring or unnecessary, but I have to in the long term, because I feel like the rest of the episodes on the Nephilim may, will make more sense in a bigger picture if I do so, and how they relate to other mythologies from ancient civilizations. And you would be in incredibly surprised just how hard it is to get legitimate or objective information concerning the history of the Bible. For the longest time, I was only getting like um, like all biased stuff and stuff that's mainstream, you know, part of the narrative. But I got some good advice to use a search engine called DuckDuckGo, and they're not promoting me at all. It's just this search engine DuckDuckGo isn't biased based off of your data on your computer. So it literally will bring up anything that you search for in an unbiased manner, unlike Google. And then I started to find stuff. I mean, I already knew a lot of it from past research that I've done and just stuff that I know, but I wanted to just make sure I had all my facts straight. And yeah, there's a lot concerning the Bible that people don't really know about, and most Christians or any Abrahamic religion people will just completely call heresy. And most likely won't even ever listen to you if you try and say that kind of stuff to them. So. Yeah, if you're a Christian or any Orthodox religion and very serious into your faith, turn off this episode now, because I'm going to throw dogma completely out the window. Don't get me wrong, I think the Bible's a very spiritually powerful book, and I have a lot of family that are religious and have faith, so I'm not really trying to bother or offend anybody. I'm not trying to preach anything as objective fact or make people believe anything. I'm just a chronicler presenting research. So if you're very religious, just stop listening now. And that's your last warning. But I think it's important to give a bigger picture so that all is better understood as a whole. 
I'm also going to be talking about demons and forbidden archaeology and forbidden history that goes against the narrative. So if you don't have your free-thinking, open-minded hats on, then just skip these episodes on the Nephilim. But that's enough introduction, let's get into it. I'm your host Tim Hacker, and you're listening to Cryptic Chronicles. So, like I said in the intro, the word Nephilim comes from the Book of Enoch. Or, I should say, the Books of Enoch, because there are many of them. And they're also known as the Apocryphal Texts by mainstream religions. The word Nephilim is also found in Genesis, which is why a lot of people have been confused by them and altered the text to make it say giants. Linguistically, the word actually does originate from the Hebrews. Though, as I'm going to get into, the Hebrews are not as culturally unique as many may think. And many over the years have tried to wipe the Books of Enoch from history altogether. But despite their efforts, the Book of Enoch has survived. Not only thanks to the Ethiopians, actually, who have the Books of Enoch in their Bible as canon, but also thanks to the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls, which were lost in a cave for millennia up until the 20th century. And because of the Dead Sea Scrolls, we have objective evidence that the Nephilim is a genuine thing for mythology. The text had a significant influence on early Christians and especially the Gnostics. It proved that the Jews and early Christians knew the Book of Enoch, and both faiths were intent on keeping it hidden for various reasons, which is strange because Enoch is referenced many times in the mainstream Bible. But the Nephilim don't just revolve around forbidden texts, but also from civilizations from the earliest recorded human history. I've talked about Zachariah Sitchin on the show before. His analysis of the ancient Sumerian tablets led him to believe in a Star Trekking race called the Anunnaki, with him even referring to the Anunnaki as the Nephilim. Which, don't worry, we're going to get into in later episodes, but one of the things that the Sumerian tablets revealed, as well as a lot of recent archaeological discoveries, is that Hebrew lore spawned from different cultures. Not only the Sumerian and Canaanite beliefs, but the Babylonians and many other early Near East civilizations. The Bible and the Hebrews in general were a latecomer to the ancient world. Even though from before the 20th century, the Bible was taught as the oldest known scriptures. This actually isn't even the case at all, not even close. And this can be objectively proven. However, depending on what version of the Bible people have, you can still find these cryptic references to the Nephilim, including Genesis 6-4. And I quote, The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward. When the sons of God came into the daughters of man, they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. End quote. And then there's Numbers 13.33. End quote. And there we saw the Nephilim, and we seemed to ourselves like grasshoppers, and so we seemed to them. End quote. And then there's Genesis 6. Verses 1 through 22, I quote, When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and the daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh, 
his days shall be a hundred and twenty years. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. End quote. In the many copies upon copies upon copies of translations upon translations of translations, the Nephilim are often changed to the word giant, though this also calls into question the metaphorical nature of the Bible and the Nephilim. Were they giants? Is the word giant analogous to what the Nephilim were originally? Or has the idea been altered to make more sense to our ancestors? I mean, if you switch a couple words around with their original unedited and unaltered versions, there's a much more supernatural aspect to the Nephilim. Let's start with the Book of Enoch itself. But who just exactly is this Enoch? Well, he's the ancestor of Noah, the man who in the Bible built the ark and put animals in it to survive the flood that wiped out all life on Earth. And if you're familiar with the term Enochian at all, which is considered the language of angels, then this is where that generates from. God chose Enoch as the direct go-between between him and uh, angels, specifically a faction of angels called the Watchers. He was just a man, but a man that would actually never die, instead taken directly to the divine realms, and one of the few mortals to ever fly with the angels, or be allowed into heaven before he was dead. Enoch traveled between heaven and earth and was the first to get bad news that the planet had become too corrupt to save, and that it must be purged in cataclysm. The Nephilim had taken over, and the Watcher's sentence solidified. They would be judged for their transgressions, and the earth would endure an apocalyptic flood to kill the Nephilim and their kingdom of darkness. So says the Book of Enoch. But how did it all come to this? And why did God want to wipe out the race of Nephilim? Well, probably because they were a direct violation of the Divine's will conducted by the Watchers. The Watchers have many other names too, like the Grigori, Egregor, Egregori, Irin, the Shining Ones, which is actually reoccurring in many other mythologies, Sons of God, and the Ben Elohim. They have a couple other names, but that's good enough. I'm going to mostly just stick to calling them the Watchers from this point on, or the Ben Elohim. Some of these titles pop up in different books of Enoch that come later, and they actually contradict each other too, which hints that the books of Enoch were actually written by different authors at different times and kind of spliced together. But these Watchers had one job, and they turned out not to be very good at it. However, the passages can translate differently significantly, and even seem like ancient aliens to a degree. But that's stuff for another episode. The universal adherence to the lore is that the Watcher's duty was to oversee the development of humanity. Kind of watch us to, I don't know, protect us or stuff like that. And basically just chronicle our existence. They were there to serve as earthly guides and be there for us in a benevolent fashion. The apocryphal books of Enoch refer to both good and bad Watchers, with a primary focus on the rebellious ones. So not all Watchers are responsible for the Nephilim, and not all Watchers betrayed the Elohim. In any case, though, they are responsible for the destruction of Old Earth and the Predeluvian world, at least according to this narrative. The Watchers that chose to abandon their duty numbered 200. However, these Watchers or angels, I guess, actually come off as uh, becoming obsessed with humans in a very unhealthy way, specifically women. They lusted after them, and the Watchers had a unique relationship with humans that they completely profaned. There were many leaders among these Watchers, but a couple specific ones that were the head honchos, and their leader was named Samyaza, which can be pronounced different ways, that's just the way I like to pronounce it. And the interesting thing about Samyaza is in that a lot of orthodox teachings or just random stuff you'll find when researching the Watchers is that Samyaza is 
basically kicked out of the narrative and switched with Satan or Lucifer or even Azazel. They take these other characters and just kick out some Yaza, replacing him with them, which actually is a pretty typical Christian thing to do. In later books, there's uh, an entity called Santaniel, which is uh, similar to the word Satan, but is obviously Samyaza, just from a different perspective and writer. And no, no matter how much they try to replace this character, when you go back and translate things correctly from its uh, closest to original texts, it's Samyaza that's the leader of the Watchers in a very distinct way. He's just not mentioned anywhere else in the Bible, the mainstream Bible unlike Azazel and Satan, so people will remove him and replace him with other characters to suit their perspectives. But it was this Samyaza that was the commander of this heavenly host. The other higher leaders, I'm not going to go over all of them, were the archangel Ramiel and Azazel being next on the totem pole. Since Ramiel is an archangel, I'd assume that he would be the head honcho, but... He's not. In any case, the Watchers really wanted to descend down to Earth, and they went to Samyaza, you know, trying to tell him that they wanted to do that. But Samyaza said that that was a dumb idea because he was the only one that would be taking the blame from God. So to convince him, the rest of the Watchers put curses on each other and made pledges that they would all be responsible for any consequences. And when they all came to an agreement, they descended from the heavens to earth. They took on physical bodies and started walking among the humans, teaching humanity knowledge far beyond their current cultural evolution. They taught humanity science, astrology, agriculture, the occult, metallurgy, warfare, and basically anything you can think of. But if this wasn't spitting on the divine plan enough, they also took human women as their wives and got them pregnant, and the offspring of these unions are the Nephilim. Now, the most accepted meaning for the Hebrew word of Nephilim is the fallen ones. And this may make you think that it's related to something like a fall from grace, you know, like the angels falling from heaven or something like that, since it's a common Christian maxim to hear. But that really isn't the case, because the way it's used in Hebrew means fallen in death, specifically a heroic death. But the word can also be used just to describe falling downstairs. Most scholars believe that it was used in a term um, being associated with a heroic death, like that of a legendary warrior or something such as if Hercules was killed in a Greek myth. And indeed, Nephilim in their original accounts are like Achilles, Hercules, Gilgamesh, Jason, Perseus, or any other half-god human hero of legend. My main point is just that the word Nephilim is not a derogatory term, which sadly is what a lot of people assume it is. And despite what you'll find in stuff just randomly searching the Nephilim, there is an essential distinction between Nephilim and other giants mentioned in the Bible, such as Goliath, the one that David killed. If you look at the Hebrew letters, the if you look at it, there's a very big distinction between that and uh, David, when he kills Goliath in the tale, is the Goliath is not referenced or talked about in the way that the Nephilim are whatsoever, and the name is completely missing. Goliath was probably just a super tall dude, like seven feet tall or something, and never once referred to as Nephilim. <laughs> I really could not spit that out in a coherent way, but none of the later giants are ever referred to as Nephilim, not only in spelling, but the way they're talked about, so they're a separate thing, and the Nephilim existed in an age of legend before the Great Flood, and shortly after, eventually, well, allegedly, eventually going totally extinct. But this outlook of uh, Nephilim being glorious heroes is contradicted by later descriptions that describe them being more in line with barbaric savages, who have a hunger that is never satisfied for the flesh of humans and animals alike. But this makes sense when you realize that many people wrote the Bible, with differing opinions and all of it spliced together in an attempt to make a cohesive narrative. 
The Book of Enoch, or The Books of Enoch, is more so the Hebrew point of view concerning a global event. Hi there, thanks for listening to Cryptic Chronicles. The show is sponsored by Blueberry, and if you're interested in starting your own podcast, use our link. Go to crypticchroniclespodcast.com and click on the Blueberry link on the homepage. By doing so, you'll be helping the show. Blueberry is optimized for iTunes as well as all podcast hubs. You won't have to worry about expensive contracts or fees. In fact, you won't have to leave your own website. You'll have your own RSS feed and no third-party sites. Try it for a month free by going through Cryptic Chronicle. Also, if you're a fan of cryptic content, please support the show on Patreon. By giving just $1 a month, you can really assist us in posting more content frequently. You'll also have access to bonus ad-free episodes of the show and the Discord channel. To keep up with all Cryptic Chronicles content, follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Tumblr, and of course Facebook. Give the Facebook page a like and join the Cryptic Chronicles group. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for supporting the show. But most of all, thanks for listening. to clean up another often misinterpretation of the Nephilim, which you'll see everywhere researching this stuff and is actually really common. The Watchers have often been translated as uh, one of the references to them being the sons of God, which is actually a mistranslation. And we're getting to the part that might piss off some Orthodox people. There's this hidden aspect to the Hebrews of the ancient world that most people are unaware of, and that's that they were hugely inspired by the Canaanites and heavily influenced by the Phoenicians. The area where the Hebrews would come to settle, the Israelites and all that, that was the land of Canaan. And it was a land that was ancient long before anybody would ever speak Hebrew. And according to objective archaeology, the Hebrews were even once Canaanites themselves, which is blasphemy. However, it's important to remember that the Canaanites were not a, like one unified people or empire, but they were a scattering of city-states all with their own unique individual societies that just shared a common culture. And for a long time, this area was ruled by Egypt and was one of the most important trade routes to the Near East, meaning it was a busy hubbub. This is before the Bronze Age collapse, though, and the coming of the mysterious and enigmatic Sea People. If you don't know about that story, that's uh, basically the apocalypse of the ancient world, but that's a story for another day. One of the biggest giveaways for archaeologists in the early 20th century is that when they were excavating lands in what is now Syria, they found a massive amount of evidence that gave a lot of enlightening information on the Canaanites including the Hebrew and the Canaanite mutual creator god, El, whom in the Canaanite belief is the patriarch of the Elohim. The Elohim being the pantheon or the group of gods that were his children. And also using different names, this pantheon also extends backwards through Babylon, Akkadia, um, Assyria, Hittites, Sumer. It's all the same stuff, different names. But my point is that the term Elohim is plural and includes El and all the other gods as well. It's the reason all the divine names in Hebrew and like the angels and whatnot and Israel itself, that all the words end in El because El is the almighty above all else and the original creator God, the holy one, the ancient of days, among many more other ancient titles which really pisses off a lot of people because um, the Jews and Hebrews and Israelites and whatnot, 
They're really known for their monotheism. That's what they're famous for. But that only really came into a focus and a dogmatic concept in, later on in their history. Early on, they were just worshipping the pantheon of the Elohim like any other Canaanite faction. So people who try and say that Elohim means God, like as in the singular Yahweh, that's bullshit. Yeah, maybe later they kind of switched it to be like that and they try have, they've always tried to get rid of all the evidence about their ancient pagan past, I guess. But um, overall, El was adopted by the Hebrews and El means shining. But there's other meanings for the word as well. However, this is where the Hebrew word for the shining ones come from, Elohim, which also can be translated as the powerful ones, or yeah, I'll get into that, hold on. But I'm sure you can see why I warn people not to listen to this episode if they're really into theology. Because not that long ago, I could get burned at the stake for saying stuff like this. And honestly, it can be kind of offensive, even though it's objectively factual. El was the supreme entity, but the term God or gods wasn't used in the same way we understand it in modern or medieval times. Deity might be a better word, with El being God. And you'll find that in a lot of these ancient religions, there's a like an obscure monotheism in a way, just with a nice little spin on it. So like the, how can I explain that? Basically, just think of the other gods other than El as angelic, divine beings, and there you go. You're back to monotheism. You see, people in modern times are just so ingrained with this word God, whereas the ancients looked at it somewhat different. But then even that has many, many different points of view, perspectives, and uh, outlooks on it. I don't really want to get into because that would take a long time to explain as well. But basically, El was the one God, quote unquote, with the rest just being an extension of it, like uh, its offspring, just, I'm not going to try to explain it. El, but El created the feminine and masculine energies represented by his manifestation. This is his counterpart, Asherah, which actually is depicted in early Hebrew texts, but was taken out of the canon. The whole patriarch stuff didn't really come around yet, and uh, in the ancient times, women were often seen just as equal as men in almost all context. But once it turned to like a patriarch kind of system, they removed Asherah from the canon. The true essence of the Holy One existed outside of material matter or creation in general. Unknowable and ineffable. And you'll find this theme in other ancient religions too, but... There's so much contradictions and so much debate about a lot of it. There's really no point in trying to sum it up with like a factual conclusion. But my whole point of this is that the sons of God referenced in Genesis 6 when referring to the Watchers actually may mean something very different than what modern translations come to. The conclusion, I guess. Because there's Asherah, who's the wife of God, the feminine, and then you have like an entire pantheon like Baal and um, Ishtar. Uh, all of them are the Elohim and they had their children of their own. These children in the Bible are referred to as the Ben Elohim. The Ben Elohim being the watchers. So Elohim being plural, not singular, actually means the sons of the gods. The Elohim are a pantheon. And this changes a lot of context of the Watchers and the way that we may look at angels. This is pure heresy, by the way, so don't ever repeat this to Christians. You know, it's not cool to be a dick. Just let them believe whatever they want. But the Hebrew El, or as they would call him, Elyon, Most High, is a Canaanite adoption, which is why they changed all the focus to Yahweh later. If they were referring in the Book of Enoch to a singular god, it would just be El. But instead, the word spelled with the Hebrew letters Aleph, Lamed, He, Yad, and Samak, very distinctly spelling Elohim, which is El's pantheon of lesser deities, 
So the correct translation would be sons of the gods when talking about the Ben Elohim and not the sons of God. That is, is the popular translation. And no, I'm not Jewish. That's just how deep my fascination goes into these ancient mysteries. I taught myself how to read and write Hebrew all on my own, and I also want to teach myself other ancient languages like Aramaic and even cuneiform. But this realization is in direct opposition to both modern Judaism and Christianity and will piss off a lot of people in those circles. They will deny it and throw out all kinds of jargon at you or whatever if you try and uh, debate them on it. But when it comes down to later on in the history of these religious beliefs, they altered things to sort of suit the point of view that their religion had evolved into. But in its early forms, this is objective fact. God's referred to with many names in the Bible, such as, as I said, Yahweh, the most well-known, but also many others. El even has many secret names only taught to different schools of knowledge, but this is a common thing. There's Adonai, Yehovah, Eheye, Agla, Yadhe, Bavhe, the Tetragrammaton. But Elohim is specifically plural, and all about El's divine children. Oh, and another thing that I hear people get wrong sometimes, or like uh, a lot of people get wrong actually, is whenever you hear a, or I mean whenever you see a J in spellings that come from uh, Hebrew, that's a Y sound. So Jehovah is Yahovah. Jesus would be Jesus, etc. But even Jesus is just the Romanized version of the name. His original name was a uh, who was it? The Apostle Paul, I believe. The one who, who was originally like a persecutor who then um, turned on his persecution job and joined the religion of Christianity and then took it to Rome. He's the one who changed it from Yeshua or Yeshua and spread it as Jesus because that would be more accepting to the Roman population. But a lot of times whenever you see J, it's a Y sound. And Christians can also say that it's just the Trinity represents the plural meaning of Elohim. But the Trinity actually isn't even Christian canon until instated by Constantine, the Roman Emperor. Well, at least it was approved by him. He didn't really care about religion and only used Christianity as a political tool to consolidate his power. And at the time, there was no solid Christian canon. There was the Gnostics, who are often attributed to being the purest form of the original Christianity. But there are many different beliefs in early Christianity, and there are many powers that be at the time that wish to rectify all this into a single unified dogma. And Constantine knew that this was required if he wanted to use it as population control. There was only a small faction of believers who believed in this trinity, and it was actually a lot of contention if Jesus was even divine or not, or a physical person. This whole thing is called the Council of Nicaea, and it's genuinely true. And the Christians would go on to commit genocide on anyone who did not fall in line with the mainstream beliefs that they wanted. The Trinity wasn't believed by any ancient Jews or early Christians, and didn't even come around until like 400 years after Jesus died, after it was Romanized. This is long, long, long after the inception of the religion. And the reason why I say Gnosticism is closer to the original version of Christianity is because it was much more about free thought and uh, against the system, the establishment, against these forms of tyranny, of religious tyranny. And if you read some of the other older books, like the uh, these apocryphal texts in the Dead Sea Scrolls, there's an interesting book called the Book of Judas, in which Judas seems to be the only, like, really person who gets it at Jesus's teachings and Jesus has like a special place for him even talking to him telling him that out of everybody he's the only one who really understands and he's the only one who really gets the secret doctrine and in this version of the tale Jesus wasn't betrayed by Judas but is actually instructed by Jesus to do all the things that he did which turns everything on its head and is complete heresy but it's there, and if you try and bring up the book of Judas to Christians, they will stare at you with glazed eyes. And don't get me wrong to think that I'm glorifying the Gnostics. I'm not. 
The Gnostics were never a unified singular religion or anything like that. They're a cascade of different perspectives and point of views, just with kind of a similar philosophy. There's outright many Gnostic sects who should be completely dismissed because they're crazy. And so I'm not trying to proclaim the universal truth of the Gnostics. <laughs> getting really lost in the woods. Let me get back on track. The word Elohim is used to describe gods of other nations in the Bible too. So it wasn't just for the Canaanites or for the Hebrews. It was a globally used term to describe gods, such as in Exodus 12, 12, and I quote, Against all the Elohim of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord, end quote. In the modern Bible, it says, all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment, I am Yahweh. But that is a later, much later actually, alteration. And then there's Genesis 35.2, I quote, Put away the strange Elohim that are among you, end quote. The word Elohim is even described as what Adam and Eve may become if they eat the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Genesis 3.5, I quote, For God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as Elohim, knowing good and evil. End quote. Now, that's a pretty big change, changing the word to Elohim, using the proper translations for the Bible, actually changes a lot of meaning. It's an objective fact that in the original text, it explicitly says Elohim when referring to gods. And with Elohim coming from Canaanite backgrounds, which in turn are influenced by Babylonian and Sumerian cultures, this paints a far more interesting picture of the nature of the Bible. In fact, the very first line from the Bible should actually sound like this with the accurate translation. I quote, In the beginning, the Elohim created the heavens and the earth. End quote. Which essentially means, in the beginning, the gods created the heaven and the earth. Whereas in the modern Bible, it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Not God, gods is the original way to translate it. And that's very, very, very much heresy. Christianity says not to believe in any gods but God. But even God mentions other gods in the Bible. What's wrong is just the terminology being misused by the modern tongue. El, also Elion, should be thought of as God, whereas the Elohim should be more accurately referred to as deities. And if this is to be taken literally, such as later passages by Yahweh, the scripture seems to be very contradictory. However, this is not the case when you understand the whole and big picture with the right translation. And you can see how the religion evolved to become something different over time. So setting dogma aside, the Watchers were essentially a group of gods. The sons of the gods. Though, while talking about Enoch's book, we'll just refer to them as a type of angel for the time being. I just wanted to point that out so you understand that there's a bigger picture above dogmatic cultural points of view. And just how many times have aliens been referred to as gods in ancient alien lore? Not saying you should believe or take any of this to heart, it's just interesting to think about concerning the topic of the Nephilim. Hello, dear listener. Have you ever had a paranormal experience? A spiritual or esoteric experience? Have you ever seen a UFO or something that you could not explain? Have you ever witnessed anomalous activity that defies reality? Have you ever experienced unexplained mysteries of existence? If you have your own cryptic tale and would like to have it shared on the podcast, then call 1-800-757-6049 and leave a message of your experience. If it's what Cryptic Chronicles is all about, then it will be shared on the show. Just make sure you thought about what you will say ahead of time, and give a clear and concise account. 
Also make sure to leave your name, where you're from, or any information that will assist in making a clear picture to portray to listeners of Cryptic Chronicles. Once again, call 1-800-757-6049. That's 1-800-757-6049. We look forward to hearing from you. Chronicles.com, click on the sponsor link on the homepage. By going through Cryptic Chronicles, you will not only be helping to support the show, but you'll also have the best podcasting host on the market. There's no contracts, and you can cancel any time. You'll have free 24-hour tech support, syndication with your own RSS feed, as well as a plethora of other goodies that only professional podcasters use. There's no third-party sites to log into. Never leave your own website. You remain in control. All you have to do is produce your podcast, write your blog post, and then publish with 29,000 plugins to pick from. By going through Cryptic Chronicles, you'll have one month free of the best podcast statistics, as well as one month free of the best podcast hosting. So go through our sponsor, Blueberry, today. And if you can, visit Loch Ness, because I am very hungry. In any case, these Watchers were some pretty powerful entities that chose to take human forms, though they did defy instructions of their duty towards humanity. El may be the creator god, yet he did not rule over all the Elohim. In Canaanite myth and the Baal cycle, Baal is remembered as the main king of the gods, but there's a point when another entity comes to take over called Yam Nahar, and El stepped aside without hesitation to let him rule. And it was most likely this ruler of the Elohim that was in charge of the Watchers, though. <laughs> That's just speculation. Yamnahar was much more stern than El, and demanded a lot of those under him, gods and humans alike. Yamnahar is remembered as the god of the waters, and, uh, uh... Let's just say I have contention concerning the information I came across Yamnahar in my research. I don't really believe it, and I couldn't find very good resources or uh, or the sources of information behind the information I came across. But supposedly this Yom Nahar is Yahweh. I mean, and that would be awesome if there was some evidence to back that up, but I don't see it. There really is no depiction of Yahweh that actually has evidence to back it up, is on a wall inscription in ancient Egypt. Yahweh originally seemed to be like some kind of tribal desert god, but that's only in the context of actual archaeological discoveries. Archaeology is not always right, and there could be older stuff that we just haven't found yet, or even stuff that links Yom Nahar to Yahweh. But no, I did not see any evidence. I would just, I thought it was cool and threw it in there. But back to real mythology, the Canaanite god Baal defied the rule of Yom Nahar, which is most likely why the Hebrews would later demonize the Near East local god, if you follow the narrative I just said about Yom Nahar being Yahweh. But that's a whole different thing. I'm getting off topic. It's uh, fascinating to know where the name Yahweh does come from, at least according to mainstream archaeology, though there were many reasons 
other than that, why the Hebrews would demonize the Canaanites. Though the cult of Yahweh was in fact brought to the Hebrews by Canaanites, and how the Yahweh from Egypt that was a wandering desert god became a part of the Canaanite pantheon, who knows? Somehow it happened. Any evidence was probably destroyed by the ancient Hebrew priests to cover the tracks. But people will connect Yom Nahar to Yahweh without any evidence. Uh, it's a thing. When the Assyrian Empire destroyed the northern kingdom of the Canaanites around 700 BCE, give or take 100 or 200 years, I'm not going to reference that right now, but the royal family escaped to none other than the kingdom of Jerusalem and complete with their whole priesthood as refugees. And as tradition was back then, this fleeing Canaanite family brought their family god with them, Yahweh. Or at least a version of Yahweh that would turn into Yahweh. But they are responsible for the cult of Yahweh basically becoming a strong presence in Jerusalem. Yahweh was known as the judge, the god of right action, and a warrior storm god. In Canaanite culture, it was customary for tribes to commit covenants with specific gods, and the Canaanite royal family had a covenant with Yahweh, also called Yom Nahar or Yom, but like I said, Yom and Yom Nahar are more the water god and seem very separate. I don't know where that connection was made. But Yahweh is most likely the Elohim that is judging over the watchers. And it's really fascinating to think that there's a difference between El and Yahweh and that the main creator god isn't always the king of the gods. But that's a consistent theme in these ancient cultures' pantheons. As you'll come to see. For the next hundred years to two hundred years after the royal family of the Canaanites and their priesthood settled in Jerusalem, there was nothing but war with the Assyrians. Well, not really war war because the Hebrews didn't stand a chance, but there was constant conflict and they were effectively a client state of Assyria that paid tons of tribute and uh basically bribed them to keep them from destroying their civilization. But there wasn't a sole dedication to the worship of Yahweh until a king called Josiah, a boy king that, at only eight years old, came to the throne of Judah. His father, the former king, was assassinated, and it's 100% likely the priesthood assassinated him, specifically the priests of the cult of Yahweh. And the logic behind this for scholars is that the the people of Israel needed a, a warrior god, because the Syrians are dicks. So the cult of Yahweh priests assassinated the former king, put in the boy king Josiah as a puppet ruler, and then blamed the murder on some people and executed them, thus gaining not only total power, but the power to dictate the future religion of Israel. The people who would go on to raise this boy king Josiah being the priesthood descended from the ones fleeing from their homeland that was formerly in Canaan. The priests quickly indoctrinated the boy into their faith and altered some texts on what would become Deuteronomy to basically seal their agenda in which Yahweh must be the solely worshipped high god over all the others. The former king had saved tons of money during his reign and the cult of Yahweh convinced the boy king that they needed that money in order to make a new temple for Yahweh. And this is the birth of monotheistic and worship solely dedicated to the covenant with Yahweh. So Yahweh not only took over rulership of the other Elohim, but became the sole god that could be worshipped. And thus the rest of the gods were demoted to be angels basically or divine heavenly entities from that point on. And it is Yahweh that these gods or watchers or angels or whatever you want to call them answered to. And Yahweh, the god of order, law, right action, was not an Elohim you wanted to disappoint. There was a reason the Elohim were up in arms when El stepped aside to let him rule heaven, and Ashtar and Baal totally opposed him. 
but to disobey Yahweh meant torment, and for some that torment would be eternal. The Hebrews would then go on to run some pretty dirty propaganda for the rest of their history concerning their patron god, I mean uh, Yahweh's opposers, the not only the Babylonian gods, but the Canaanite gods, the any other gods. The Hebrews would go on to run constant propaganda campaigns against their neighbor and primogenitor of the foundation that would become their faith, the Canaanites, and from that point on kind of separated themselves away from them, even claiming not even to ever be a part of them. And for those in the know, yes, I'm aware of the Baal cycle, and I'm aware of the discrepancies, and that Baal actually does defeat Yom Nahar. But it looks like the Hebrews went in a different direction concerning their mythology that evolved into the Yahweh cult. And this is where the religion of uh, the Bible starts to come into fruition the way that we would understand it and recognize it, complete with something called the Divine Council. And if you haven't heard of the Divine Council, then this is going to be pretty fascinating. Because a lot of people associate it with like uh, alien stuff. But it seems that with proper translations of the Bible, Satan isn't necessarily what we think he is because he actually hangs out with God. He's actually at this divine council hanging out with all the other divine beings or Elohim. And that's right, Satan hanging out in heaven with God and other entities. And this is Job 1.16. I quote, Now, there was a day when the Ben Elohim, sons of the gods, came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came also among them." End quote. And as mentioned earlier in this episode, the Ben Elohim is the name for the Watchers. Though it's weird because the name Satan seems more like a title or a job than an individual person. And of course, this text would be edited and altered as well. And here's an example of more edited scripture changing the meaning of an entire passage just by little words being tweaked. And this is the LLX version, an older version, but still not the oldest version of a translation of the Bible. Deuteronomy 32.8 I quote, When the Most High divided the nations, he separated the sons of Adam. He set boundaries of the nations according to the number of angels of God. And his people, Jacob, became the portion of the Lord. Israel was the line of his inheritance." End quote. And here's a newer MT version that is very different. Quote, when the Most High gave the nations their inheritance, when he divided all the sons of man, he set the boundaries of the people according to the number of the sons of Israel. For Yahweh's portion was his people. Jacob was the lot of his inheritance." End quote. So that's a pretty big difference, changing out angels with uh, regular humans, specifically Israelites. Like what? But that's not all. There's actually some other translations of uh, LLX that has the angels replaced with the sons of gods, or the, son of, the sons of God, you know, you know what I'm saying, which in Hebrew is the Ben Elohim. But even more damning to show just how tampered with these scriptures were was when the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered. Now, the scrolls aren't perfect either, and they have been edited as well, though they are closer to the source. In the Dead Sea Scrolls, the passage goes like this, and I quote, When El gave the nations as an inheritance, when he separated the sons of man, he set the boundaries of the peoples according to the number of the Ben Elohim, for Yahweh's portion was his people. Jacob was the lot of his inheritance." End quote. So it sounds like El from the Canaanite pantheon is basically giving out nations of the world to be ruled by the gods, specifically the Ben Elohim, the sons of the gods. And Yahweh just seems to be another one of the gods in the pantheon. The scriptures were altered over time to suit the narrative of, you know, the priests or whatever. It goes from gods to angels, all the way down to human Israelites. 
This especially makes sense when monotheism is supposed to be what a belief system is all about. They couldn't have this ancient pagan crap in their scriptures. I mean, what it goes against everything that they stood for and the history that they claim to have. So they essentially censored history. And this scripture actually goes along with Canaanite culture because to the ancient Canaanites, all the nations of the world were given as inheritance from El to individual gods and their pantheons and children. And since El gave free will to the gods, they often opposed one another. The Titans were given Greece with Zeus. Well, the not Zeus, the Titans, but Zeus eventually took over. Odin was given Scandinavia and Northern Europe. Marduk was given Babylon and so on and so forth. Any pantheon from any civilization is or was the Elohim to the perspective of the Canaanites. All of the quote-unquote gods were of the 70 original children of El and Asherah. Canaan and Israel were once the same land and given to Yahweh by El. And this is why many Gnostics believe Yahweh to be the Demiurge. Well, all Gnostics, I mean, but we'll get into that later. Though that is just one way to look at it, I guess. But Yahweh was basically always depicted as an incredibly stern ruler who was harsh and jealous. The god of order, judgment, right action, and law. Yahweh was inherently about control, so how the entity conducts itself in the Old Testament kind of makes sense. So it's kind of crazy that there's been so much editing and censorship concerning the Bible, huh? But then again, people have been editing material to change history to better benefit agendas since the beginning of human history. Thank God we found the Dead Sea Scrolls, because these ancient scrolls have actually given us a lot more clarity than uh, any mainstream perspective ever could. And if you're interested in exploring this more, then I suggest reading Yahweh and the Gods and Goddesses of Canaan by John Day. I'll link it in the show notes. But it's really a great book with objective archaeological evidence that proves what we think of as the Bible has actually changed a lot over the past 3,000 years, and that there's a much bigger picture. I didn't get all my research from this book, but there's a lot of good stuff in it. And since so much of it was, uh, the Bible I mean, since so much of it was censored and altered, the internet is exceptionally unreliable to research this topic unless you know the right keywords and you use a different alternative search engine. And the Watcher tales or the books of Enoch are most likely orally given by people to people and altered over time. Oral traditions are common in the Near East and these myths would naturally change on their own. When the Hebrews eventually got around to actually writing the tale of Enoch down, it's probably far from its original form. But the good thing about myths is that the essence is still there. Though the authorship of the Book of Enoch is shrouded in mystery, it did originate around 300 BC being actually like written down, but it's been attributed to so many different people and including like Hermes Trismegistus and all kinds of people. Personally, I believe that it was many authors and orally passed down through tales. So this is the first episode in a series I'm doing on the Nephilim all the way through to the dawn of human history. This episode is mostly just about the Elohim, the origins of uh, all that stuff, the origins of the Book of Enoch, the history of the Bible, in which the Watchers and Nephilim tales come from, I guess. But this episode is basically just to give a foundation for all the episodes to come, because I got like seven on the back burner all surrounding the Nephilim. So now that we got the foundation out of the way, in the next episode, we can actually get into the good stuff. And uh, the journey into the books of Enoch and all the different Watchers and Nephilim, Samyaza, and the notorious Azazel, who in demonology is very well known. We'll explore Enoch's journey into the heavens, as well as the many entities that were larger than life roaming the earth before the cataclysm. Entities that are said to be highly supernatural and far beyond the capabilities of any mortal. And since this is all prehistory and just like mythology and Bible lore, we're not going to really find much objectivity, but 
we can try and put something together. And I also look at the two sides because there's a side that says the Bible is wrong or not the Bible, the books of Enoch are wrong and like um, there's a secret message in it and that the Watchers were actually good guys. And then there's the whole mainstream version saying that the Nephilim are fallen angels, the Watchers are fallen angels and demons and whatnot. But after this episode, we can actually look at these myths and see the bigger picture surrounding them. And now that we know where all of this comes from, the Canaanite religion, and then before that, the Assyrians, Akkadians, Babylonians, and of course, Sumerians, where all of this comes from in the first place going to be a wild ride and I already have all the research done and I have everything good to go and the plan set up. So expect an awesome series on the Nephilim with this just being the beginning. so much for listening to Cryptic Chronicles. The show is available on iTunes, Stitcher, Podbean, or really any podcast hub. If you can, please leave the show a good review. Whatever format you use, we could really use the help and it uh, puts us on the map to get more listeners. Last month we were trending in Canada and in Britain as the being in the top 200 podcasts. But we're not really on the map in the U.S., so if you're a listener in the U.S., please leave us a good review to help get us more numbers in the U.S. Because it's interesting that we were trending outside of the country, but but not in America, where I'm from. The main outlet for this show, I guess. Though it was really awesome to get that email from iTunes saying that we were trending, which means that this show is actually pretty successful and doing awesome. So thank you for all the support that you have been giving. I really appreciate it. And to those listeners in Canada and uh, the United Kingdom, thank you. You are awesome. I will do everything in my power to make sure that you are entertained and you get all the weird, creepy, and cryptic content you can possibly handle. And also make sure to subscribe on social media. We're on Facebook. We're on uh, Twitter. We're on Tumblr. Uh... Mostly just Facebook, though. Oh, and Instagram. Instagram's awesome. I do have a Reddit, but I don't really go on any of my social media accounts. I do check them, though, if you do send me or follow stuff on any of that. And I do post stuff on them. But I'm, I don't know. I mostly just uh, stick to Instagram and Facebook and YouTube. Make sure you subscribe to the YouTube channel as well. Let me know what you want me to cover, because um, all the videos I've done recently have literally just been viewer requests. Like all those SCPs I've been doing, that's all just requests from people who ask. Give me any feedback you can because I just want to get better and I got thick skin so I can take criticism really well. And we got all the social media links and YouTube link and whatnot on the website. So just go to crypticchronicles.com or crypticchroniclespodcast.com. Scroll all the way down and the links will be right there. Our Facebook group, though, is where it's at. We actually got a lot of people at our Facebook group who all contribute, and and we got a lot of cool conversations and uh, banter going, so come check it out. We'd really love to have you over there. Tell me what's up. I always respond. We got a real good, uh, got a bunch of awesome admins, too. And if you really, really like Cryptic Chronicles, consider supporting us on Patreon. I mean, just for a buck a month. You unlock uncensored full versions of episodes with no ads in them. (laughs) My ads are pretty cool though. But no ads and uh, you get the YouTube videos early and unlock exclusive episodes of the show only available to patrons. 
Yet again, the link is at the website, crypticchronicles.com, crypticchroniclespodcast.com. It's called The Chronicler's Vault. It's at the top and next to categories. You can't miss it. And I'd like to give a shout out to my patrons because they are amazing and awesome. Mark Lane, he is the man. You're the man, Mark. Angie Allen, thank you for running the Facebook group so well. Kenny, my long, I think my longest patron. Kenny's awesome. You're my homie, Kenny. Leanna Watts, Stephanie Wilkie, Linda Gonzalez, and of course, the mighty Paul, the most recent patron. Thank you all. It actually means a lot to me that you enjoy my work enough to be a patron. Like, honestly, just every day I see it, it pumps me up, make me want to do better and better and make more and more. And uh, thank you. If you'd like to become a patron, just go to the Chronicles Vault or just find us on Patreon. There's different tiers and you can get different stuff, including joining the Discord server, being able to choose an episode, come co-host with me, have me tell your own tale, or a bunch of other awesome stuff. So come join the ranks of the most awesome people who ever lived and join the Chronicler's Vault. And if you want to leave me your own cryptic tales to have heard on the show, I haven't had much luck with this lately because the people who have been calling in just just hasn't been working out. But uh, make sure that you have a coherent story and you are objective. Just call in at 1-800-757-6049. 1-800-757-6049. And tell us your own account of maybe high strangeness or unexplainable things that have happened to you. And it'll be on the show. Thanks for listening to Cryptic Chronicles. I'm your host, Tim Hacker. And as one of the best podcasters ever once said, love yourself, think for yourself, and question authority.